welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute where we offer a skeptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. And I'm Trevor Thrall. Happy holidays from all of us here at Power Problems. As we wind down the year, we wanted to review everything that happened in 2018. It's been a very busy year. And then we wanted to think about what might lie ahead in 2019. That's year three of the Trump administration. Joining us for our discussion today is Eric Gomez, our colleague at Cato and previous podcast guest. Welcome back. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So let's start by reviewing the year. Um, What were the highlights that you guys took away from 2018? Uh, what's old is new again in nuclear weapons policy. Uh, we got a discussion of arms control agreements with withdrawal from the INF, um, the uh, nuclear modernization budget that is currently a very hot topic for the incoming Congress with people like Adam Smith, um, representative from Washington, talking about putting some restraints on it again. So um, I'm tracking that very closely uh, and will be in the year to come. Yeah, so what's what's old is new again, but all those deals are getting killed by John Bolton, right? Yes. Now, Bolton is adding more and more trophies in his pursuit to get rid of all arms control, it seems. Uh, he was directly responsible for the 2002 ABM treaty, uh, biting the dust, and now he's he went after the INF. So who knows what's next? Yeah, B- Bolton, uh, you know, that raises the point that... Um... You know, Trump's uh, national security team uh, is, is was an ongoing issue in 2018. Who's in? Who's out? Who's up? Who's down? Uh, certainly, that has been a big issue. I think you know what's fascinating is that a lot of these issues at one point seemed like they were all encompassing in 2018, only to be completely forgotten for the rest of the year because of the sort of circus in D.C. So, you know, the war on terror continues apace. Um, you know, we can talk about Afghanistan. We can talk about Iraq. We can talk about Syria. All those things were news for at least a day in 2018 and are huge stories. But, you know, sitting here at the end of the year, you're like, wow, I, you know, in another year, that might have been maybe the only story, but there's just so much. Yeah, it does seem like there's been a bit more continuity in the Trump administration, um, inside the White House at least, over the last six months, right? I mean, because the, the first six months of the year, we saw a huge amount of change over in the administration. But we've had, I mean, we've had John Bolton as National Security Advisor for about six months. We've had General Mattis around for longer than that. Uh, Pompeo's been Secretary of State for about that long. So it does seem like we might have reached an equilibrium there. Though you have sort of impending, you know, retirements or whatever you want to call people leaving, you know, with the, um, I think new year, you're going to get at least a couple new faces. Uh, Kelly, I think is going to leave soon. Wouldn't surprise me for, um, you know, Nikki Haley leaving. I wouldn't surprise me if Mattis finally gives up. Uh, so, uh, you know, this might be the calm before the storm. Yeah. There's plenty of room for big personnel changes to come and, uh, some implications for foreign policy, especially with those. Also, I think the sort of investigation that's going to um, the Mueller investigation as it continues to sort of wrap up more and more things could uh, add another wrinkle to that. Yeah, that's true, because a lot of the the changes that we previously saw were, if not associated with the Mueller investigation, then sort of knock-on effects from it. Um, so we haven't really talked about Russia. Russia in 2018 was almost less of a foreign policy issue and more of a domestic policy issue, which is rather unusual. Yeah, the, the, the politics of Russia have just kind of gone topsy-turvy over the last couple of years. And uh, 
you know, 20 years ago, you never would have predicted the the way Russia would get handled as, I mean, I, the idea that there's two sides to the Russia story on, on the domestic front is bizarre to me. It's like, hmm, you know, but yeah. You know, for me, the, the big story of 2018 is sort of the other country that's been interfering in our elections and just putting a bunch of money all around DC, and that's the Saudis and the Emiratis, um, particularly the changing US-Saudi relationship. So after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, we have seen a pushback in Congress um, among the media against the sort of the continuing US-Saudi relationship that would have been unthinkable uh, even a year ago. Yeah, no, that's very true. It's, you know, it, it may be a sign that two years in, um, after, you know, a lot of talk um, off camera, by Republicans in Congress, that there's finally a threshold that has been reached where now it's time that they finally feel pushed, compelled to do stuff in public to push back against Trump. I mean, they've been a little bit here, a little sanctions on Russia they didn't want, but this is really the first big you know, sign that Congress is ready to push back. Yeah, we've seen those recent votes um, on things like war powers on Yemen, where Congress seems to be reasserting itself. Um, but I don't think that's the story of 2018. I don't think Congress has actually reasserted itself on foreign policy as much as we might like to believe it. Yeah, def definitely not yet. Um, there are some encouraging signs that it could be coming and more could be coming down the pike. Um, next year. But you're right, Emma, I think that it's still going to be a long way for Congress to really get back to its sort of constitutionally defined roles um, when it comes to overseeing uh, the stuff that goes into foreign policy, if not necessarily foreign policy itself. Yeah, I, I think, you know, w w Congress is kind of all about potential energy. <laughs> it's not actually realized at the moment. Uh, Lindsey Graham said something after the um, Gina Haspel briefing that was extremely honest and he said if if um you know pompeo and and these guys were democrats i'd be all over them for this and you know like dude really so what you're saying here is what we all kind of know but no one's supposed to actually say it out loud which is i would use this as you know political uh, advantage because it's obviously such a terrible, you know, thing that the Trump administration is doing. But since it's a Republican administration, I'm going to pull my punches. I'm going to say I don't like it, but I'm not going to go to the mattresses here. Uh, and that's what I think people are kind of like, wow, Trump represents such a departure. Why isn't Congress willing to go all out to to push back? And, and the reason is politics, of course. Yeah. I mean, so perhaps this preview is a little that we're going to get to talking about the future in 2019 in a bit. Um, but it does seem like there's a few big issues on the table where this incoming Democratic Congress might actually make a difference. Um, investigations is one of those areas, whether it's the Russia investigation or whether it's things like the fact that Secretaries Pompeo and Mattis might have misled Congress over the, the Khashoggi killing. Those are those are areas where you might see, you know, nominally oversight investigations, right? But we all know it's partisan. Um, but then there's more serious policy implications too, right? So maybe budget stuff. Eric, mm -hmm. you alluded to nuclear modernization. Do you want to talk a little more about that? Yeah. So the Obama administration put in place this very big nuclear modernization plan where the United States would be replacing or upgrading essentially um, almost every aspect of its nuclear delivery system from new bombers, new missiles, uh, new submarines, and also 
actually having some new warhead designs as well. And uh, it, there's something called the bow wave where a lot of these costs are sort of going to be hitting the system at relatively the same time, requiring a lot more money to pay for them. And I think Trump, not only with his sort of general view to nuclear strategy, but also the nuclear posture review that came out earlier this year, um, showed that nuclear weapons are going to play a much bigger role in American security strategy during his administration. And so there's been a lot of pushback now from uh, mostly from House Democrats uh, about, well, can we afford this at its current pace? Can we you know, really be spending probably upwards of a trillion dollars over the next 30 years or so on doing all of these things? Or can we cut some systems, delay some systems, sort of play with the budget to make it uh, less sort of daunting of a budgetary challenge? Yeah, the Trump administration has been very almost schizophrenic on on defense budget issues like right. this. Um, we saw Trump demand sort of more and more money for the troops, and I'll fund the military at these high levels, and then announced that actually he was going to make cuts on the budget. It was seventeen or eighteen billion dollars mm -hmm. that just disappeared overnight from the defense budget. So he's been really inconsistent on this question. And you know what's interesting too, listening to Eric, I I remember uh, you know there's some heartburn over the trillion dollar price tag of the modernization plan that that remember Obama announced, um, right. and 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 there's you know the potential for playing politics if it's Obama's plan. Um, but two years in, one of the things I think you can say about where we've gotten to by the end of 2018 is that Trump now owns all of this stuff. They've done their review of this. They've done their review of that. They've released a new national security strategy. They've released the nuclear posture. Uh, all of these things we've talked about on the podcast, of course. So go back and find those episodes. All very good. Um, but but at this point, you know Trump owns this stuff. So whatever the state of affairs is today, it's because Trump's team has at least begun to start to make it there. I mean, they haven't finished much of anything, but but it's now theirs and it's in process and you can start to see the direction. You may not understand why the justification and coherence is kind of low on some of these mm -hmm. things, but but it's Trump's now. You know, the other area that I, I sort of wanted to hit in our discussion of 2018 is an area where I don't think the Trump administration has actually taken control of US foreign policy. And that's the ongoing wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, the US presence in Syria, our assistance in Yemen, um, even troops in Africa that we've talked about a couple of times in the podcast. It seems like the war on terror is basically this giant juggernaut just continuing to run. The Trump administration seems almost uninvolved in it, right? Donald Trump hasn't visited the troops. We almost never hear anything about, say, Afghanistan or Iraq except the occasional death. This is this is kind of strange, right? Yeah. And well, you hear that some things in Afghanistan are probably deteriorating and moving in the exact opposite direction that commanders have sort of been saying, oh, we're going to turn the corner or, you know, victory is in sight, that sort of stuff. And it definitely seems like the facts on the ground are against us there. Um, and that was one of the few things, Afghanistan especially, was one of the few things in Trump's campaign that you know I personally was sort of like, yeah, that's a good point. The way he said he wants to get out of Afghanistan and he believes that our presence there is not serving any real purpose anymore. Um, and but since coming in, he has done sort of you know sort of let it run on autopilot. Um, it'd be interesting to see if he as 2020 comes closer, uh, if he kind of takes a more personal interest in that. Um, to maybe shore up his re-election fortunes. Yeah, that 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 actually just um, not to foreshadow too heavily, but Afghanistan is going to be one of my future answers in a few minutes. Uh, but but yeah, I think you know the autopilot 
uh, function is very strong with the war on terror. And Obama inherited and um, continued most of you know what Bush had started, and now Trump has inherited from Obama that you know there's an awful lot of inertia in the system. And Trump's sort of mindset of let the generals do their thing, um, plus I think this fear of being the first person to get tagged with losing anything, I think that's anathema. And so the response has been to juice everything up 15% from what Obama was doing to make it look like you're better, more forceful, and then leave it alone. It's about 25% actually, at, 25 least, at least in the Middle East, it's about 25% more trips in every theater. So, yeah. And the, the other part of the continuity is none of it's working. So, <laughs> Are you tired of winning? Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, so much winning. <laughs> uh, on, on that note then, um, let's just quickly wrap up sort of the Trump administration of foreign policy. We have discussed this a whole bunch on this podcast um, and in other forums. Um, what grade would you give the Trump team for 2018? Uh, are the adults in the room winning or is this something that's not going particularly well? Um, I will give Trump a lot of credit for his summit with Kim Jong-un. Uh, as a sort of watcher of East Asia, one of the most frustrating things has been uh, sort of US inertia or unwillingness to sort of be kind of bold in its approach to North Korea. And that was definitely a very sort of move that only Trump could really make. Um, Unfortunately, I think his management style in general is is just so not well suited for it, and uh, that's why things are sort of stalling out now. Um, but I think that you know that is an example of, in terms of Trump's ability to kind of break certain foreign policy orthodoxy, just by sheer force of him being him, can sometimes be a good thing. And if he if he does get us out of Afghanistan, that also could be a good thing. Um, but at the caveat of the whole management of it is probably not going to be very smooth. Um, so I think you know if I was assigning a grade to the administration overall for the year, probably like a C, C minus. Um, not definitely a lot of things that I don't think will are are particularly good, but also nothing that is too damning either right now. Yeah, interesting. I, I would uh, let me first uh, preface my grade by giving a sense of scale. So. The Bush administration, I would grade it as an F um, for launching the uh, the war on terror in the sort of the manner they did and failing to make course corrections. Uh, the Obama administration, I would give a B minus uh, because although Obama was much steadier, I think in general and didn't make most things worse, um, he also, I don't think, didn't do much to make things better. Um, the Trump folks I think are somewhere in between. Eric, I was going to say something like a C or C minus. Uh, could have been worse uh, would be my, um, you know, Larry David sort of uh, callback. It could have been worse. Um, and the problem with Trump for me is, is oh, so to be fair, I give him a C minus. My concern is that he's not going to keep performing at that level. And, and whereas with Bush and Obama, you kind of felt like you knew what you were going to get. You could predict based on past behavior and statements, um, you know, yesterday means something today. I don't think you can predict that. So. It's funny. I was going to say C minus two. Um, uh -huh. You know, if I'm going to show my, my sort of millennial uh, nature, I would say, well, in Harry Potter grades, it would be exceeds expectations. Um, <laughs> but I actually think that's a pretty good description for the Trump administration, right? They they are actually exceeding our expectations. Our expectations, expectations. might be artificially low, but 
they're doing okay considering everything else. Boy, that's sad. <laughs> when, when you're starting from the bottom, there's only one way you can go, right? That's right. <laughs> we're lying down in the mud, but we're looking up at the stars. Okay. <laughs> well, that I think that provides us a pivot to uh, our next segment, which is we're going to do a quick lightning round here. Um, I want, I'm going to ask you guys some, some very quick fire questions and then we'll move on to 2019. So best book you read in 2018? I haven't finished it, but I'm about halfway through the Grant biography by Ron Chernow, and it's very, very good. Uh, it's very sort of interesting, the different um, levels of detail that Ron has in the book. And uh, yeah, it's just a fascinating thing. I'm learning a lot about my own country's history that I didn't really know the fine details of before. Uh, and it's it's a lot of fun. So definitely recommend picking it up. Yeah. So that, that sounds like a hard read, but a good one. I... Um... Finally got around this year to reading Victor Cha's book, Power Play, about the uh, sort of birth and development of the alliance, U.S. alliance system in, in Asia and uh, sort of realizing now that the future of U.S. foreign policy is unfortunately linked to China and Asia, I, I figure I got to start learning now. So a pretty good book. You know, the most terrifying book I read this year was uh, Jeffrey Lewis's 2020 Commission, which is this, um, it's, it's uh, you know, it's a War of the Worlds style um, fake history of a nuclear exchange between North Korea and the US. And it is extremely well written and footnoted. Um, so even though it's speculative history, it is um, fascinating and terrifying. And I highly recommend it if you, if you enjoy not sleeping after reading fiction. <laughs> so... Okay, um, so what about uh, this? Is a question mostly for Trevor and I. The most uh, interesting episode of the year for the podcast, or perhaps the conversation you most enjoyed recording for the podcast. I, I know what mine is. Mine was our conversation with Matt Rajansky on Russia, and that's just because we don't get to talk about Russian foreign policy in that context nearly enough. Yeah, for sure, that was a great one. Um, I guess I will. Although this is a hard one because we had many great conversations, I really enjoyed the. Uh, the conversation that uh, Sahar and I had with Bruce Gentleson about his new book, Peacemakers, and the role that individual leadership uh, still plays in global politics. That was, he had, um, you know, done great sort of deep dives on, on various leaders and what made them effective. And I found that really uh, inspiring. Okay. Uh, favorite foreign policy article of the year? Uh, James Acton in International Security wrote a great piece about. Uh, escalation and entanglement risk, basically talking about how a lot of things that the United States does or a lot of systems that the US uses for non-nuclear missions are also now sort of entwined with conventional mission sets and that there are incentives to, to target those for conventional reasons that could have nuclear escalation implications. And you know, if the theme of what's old is new again uh, regarding nuclear weapons, I think this is something that's new that I, I think is understudied. And it was great to see uh, James take a real deep dive into that um, that area. Yeah, mine's from Foreign, foreign Affairs too. Um, I really enjoyed uh, Caitlin Talmadge's article on China and the potential for uh, security spirals in East Asia. I thought that was just very well written. I'm going to punt a little bit on a singular favorite and note that, and oh, I hate to do this, but I'm going to go back to Foreign Affairs. The um, They had recently a nuclear anthology, sort of six different articles um, looking at the nuclear sort of issue. Uh, John Mueller had an issue, of course, as the sole kind of skeptic about the concerns, but uh, that was really good. In fact, you know, as since I teach graduate courses in international security, it turns out to be a very wonderful sort of up-to-date, um, you know, sort of look at the debate over 
the threat of nuclear weapons and what to do about them. Not as good as a certain nuclear anthology is going to be <laughs> next year, Eric, but, yes. but still pretty that'll, good. That'll be my favorite but article of next year when uh, we already the, know uh, the answer. <laughs> nuclear anthology that Caroline Dormany and I here at Cato have been uh, working on as editors is is in the process. It's moving along and we're really excited about a lot of the chapters in there and uh, we can't wait to to release it and talk about it some more. Okay, couple of last questions here. Uh, next Trump advisor to get defenestrated from the administration, Mattis. I, I'm I'm not sure if Mattis. I, I I think Mattis will be the next one to go, but I'm not sure if defenestration is accurate. I think it'll have to be someone who gets fired, um, and I wonder if Trump will go will gun for Mueller as uh, things get closer. So he's not really an administration official in that sense, but that would be. Yeah, that that would make for some crazy times. Okay, uh, best mustache on a national security advisor. So <laughs> there's the obvious answer, uh, but I think that um, Elbridge Colby grew out a beard at one point uh, in the last year. I think I saw a picture of that, um, and I you know I think that I would judge that as part of it, even though he wasn't national security advisor, but a former official from DOD. Oh, that was really just an opportunity to relive my favorite headline of the year, which was uh, David Rothkopf's Josh, uh, John Bolton's mustache is more qualified to be national security advisor than he Ooh. is. It is an impressive mustache, though, to be fair. Okay, final pair of questions here. Most overrated foreign policy development of the year, most underrated foreign policy development of the year. I'm going to be a little uh, sort of, I'm going to do a twofer. Um, I think the INF issue and the potential from withdrawing from it was both over and underrated. Uh, I think some aspects of it were overrated in terms of, um, I think the ch some of the changes in terms of US force structure probably won't be as uh, dire or as bad as, as some have said. But I think the underrated is its discussion as part of this broader weakening of arms control regimes recently and sort of new nuclear dynamics between the US and other great powers that are starting to just sort of emerge. Uh, that I think are going to be pretty uh, risky or dangerous for any potential future conflict. Yeah, uh, for me, overhyped um, is going to be China. Um, you know, where this reminds me, um, twenty eighteen kind of reminds me of the nineties, mid nineties, when China threat inflation became a kind of a full time job for a lot of people in DC, and. Um, there's a lot of hyperventilation about every little thing China did that you could look at sideways. And I think we're back to that. It's not that it's not a real issue, a real threat, but it's to me, it's the biggest overhyped threat. And to me, the, the most underrated development um, really is uh, the utter failure of Trump's Afghanistan strategy. It's again, it's it doesn't get much talk because who the heck wants to talk about? It? Certainly not Trump. Um, but there's sort of scuttlebutt now that um, Trump is is looking to pull out before the next uh, election and needs to be able to call it a victory. So things are happening, but this is the worst possible time to try to negotiate a deal with the Taliban who are ascending. So the, the utter failure in Afghanistan is, has really slid under the radar. Yeah. So for me, I'd say the most overrated uh, foreign policy development of the year is actually the, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, after everything that has happened in the US-Saudi relationship in the last 
25 or 30 years, you know, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, 9-11, all of these developments, and we're talking about the murder of one guy. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's it's a horrifying development, but I, I find it just so difficult to believe that this is what finally made people question the, the utility of the US-Saudi relationship. Um, and then I, I got to disagree with you a little, Trevor, on the most, uh, so I'm going to say the most underrated foreign policy development of the year is actually China, or a specific Chinese issue, which is the uh, incarceration of over a million Uyghurs inside China. Um, this is a, a topic that in any other administration we would be literally wailing and gnashing our teeth over. And and to be frank, even as a restrainer, it's not clear to me what the US response to this should be. It's horrifying. Um, we're not talking about it at all. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, that's a big one. That's huge. Okay. Well, um, on that note, then let's turn and look forward into 2019. What are you guys looking to? Um, well, in my sort of area, uh, one thing that's been a very interesting development to see over time is the partisan future of foreign policy coming up. Uh, Emma, you had a great piece recently in a, a Texas National Security Review roundtable that was looking at conservative foreign policy. They also had a, a issue about progressive foreign policy. But this has really become, I think in the last six months of 2018 especially, has become a bigger deal uh, with a lot of really smart uh, progressives and conservatives writing articles and long form things and sort of uh, sussing out what foreign policy wants to be. And I think there's a lot of common ground between restrainers and progressives um, when it comes to uh, the future of of that foreign policy. Um, but you know, it, it, I think it's going to be an interesting intellectual churn. Uh, and I think we're going to get something out of it that kind of breaks from the current um, track we're on. You know, I got to, it's funny, we did podcasts on here this year with conservative and liberal uh, foreign policy thinkers. I, I contributed to this roundtable, as, as Eric noted. Um, I'm not actually convinced the future of foreign policy is partisan, though. I know that the debates are happening in the parties right now for electoral reasons, but I honestly think the future of foreign policy, even if it's different than it is today, is probably still quite a bipartisan phenomenon. I don't know if you guys disagree with that. I think a lot of that might have to do with what the Democratic Party does um, as it has taken back the Congress and we've seen the rise of more and more sort of explicitly progressive people in that party. Um, I wonder if that's something that if it has legs and can keep going, um, then that might contribute to a more partisan nature of it. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Eric. And I think one of the, you know, it was um, <laughs> one of the reasons I went into foreign policy studies instead of domestic politics is because I hate domestic politics. So I liked staying away from that. But um, it's definitely the case that in the last 10 years that foreign policy has become much more politicized and polarized. Uh, and so it's much more partisan than it's ever been. And so the incentives, I think, for both parties to continue in that vein is fairly strong, stronger than it's ever been, number one. And number two, I do think both parties face serious challenges, as Em and I are working on in another piece, uh, both inside both parties, um, between folks who want to make it even more partisan and then folks who maybe would be more likely to follow a bipartisan consensus. And so when you read Bernie Sanders, you read Elizabeth Warren, you read some of these other folks writing about progressive foreign policy, it looks an awful lot like something most conservatives would not be involved in, in terms of a bipartisan. And, and part of that, I think, is something else that the 2018 and Trump has showed us, which is domestic politics and foreign policy are not as separate anymore as they used to be. 
So I, I, I think the future is maybe more partisan, but I'm not ready to call it yet. You know, it's unfortunate that though, because at its heart, I think the foreign policies that those people are espousing actually are quite similar to the foreign policy that certain kinds of conservatives would also um, advocate for. It's just that the framing is very different. So mm. if you're going to frame it in terms of, you know, a fight against global kleptocracy, then you're going to have trouble reaching across the aisle. If you frame it in terms of responsible stewardship of America's resources and national security, then you're going to have partners. So I, I know what you're saying that that I think if the Democratic Party frames it in this confrontational way, it may be harder to reach consensus in the long run. Well, if you, I just fairly closely read Elizabeth Warren's thing, and she says one of the classic buzzwords of partisan conflict. She she calls out multinational corporations over and over again. I mean, this is a, a guarantee of zero bipartisan cooperation when you when you make it a class conflict thing. The Republicans are going to go, that nah, that's not going to sell, and we don't want any part of it. So I and I don't think Elizabeth Warren wants to work with Republicans, frankly, on that stuff. Yes. I think a lot of these folks don't. But it's funny though, because like if she's talking about multinational co uh, corporations and she's talking about class issues and trade, she's basically wading into the exact same place that Trump is on foreign policy. So he's appealing to people with the exact same ideas. Yeah, which are Democrats and and maybe Reagan Democrats, and as Brian McGrath told us, not conservative Republicans at all historically. Like Trump has taken the Republican Party's foreign policy in a bizarre non-Republican direction. And it's, you know, maybe Pat Buchanan was that version of Republican, but he wasn't particularly Republican to most Republicans either. So yeah, it's. It, I think that, you know, it's possible. I mean, Steve Bannon has his way. The re-cleavaging of foreign policies between the cosmopolitans and the nationalists. And I don't think that's where we're going, but there's some of that flavor. Well, what about the sort of expansion of foreign policy to include all these unconventional issues like trade, like immigration, things that we used to sort of consign to this, everybody agrees on them, uh, bin, and then we would just work on national security. But now it seems like these are big areas for contention. Yeah. It seems like one thing I've, I've sort of mentioned more and more uh, looking at focusing on Asia, which, I, which is my area of, of expertise, is that it seems like U.S. foreign policy in many respects, and I think because it is incorporating these unconventional issues like trade or immigration, is becoming more and more zero-sum over time, uh, where it is going to be a lot harder for the United States to work with traditional friends and allies on a host of issues if we kind of keep on with this uh, course that we're going on. And I think the next president after Trump, who whether that be in 2020 or 2024, is going to might have to spend a lot of time, you know, stepping back from that um, it, if they want to. I, I just think that it's the zero sum uh, transformation of U.S. foreign policy is is going to be a real problem. Yeah, it's pretty disturbing. Trevor, what are you watching for 2019? Oh boy, um, you know, certainly um, I'm wondering about when the next war with Iran starts. So I, I you know, I'm, I'm Bolton surprised me by not starting anything this soon, but. Um, you know, I, I I worry that the uh, nuclear deal, um, you know, pullout was precursor to another play. Uh, it's just not clear what that is yet, but it, I can't believe that they're going to leave Iran alone. And so there's another turn of the screw there. So that's something I'm thinking about. North Korea, same way, right? Yeah. Because um, maximum pressure, yada yada. Nope, uh, that none of that seems to be working in either case. So there's another there's another you know move, and those are both sort of. You know, I don't know, kind of thing. So those are those are a couple of big ones. On, on North Korea side, 
uh, going back to something we discussed earlier, Jeffrey Lewis's book, the 2020 report or 2020 commission report, uh, sort of the scenario for how we get into a conflict with North Korea is a breakdown in the diplomatic process that happens, I believe, in 2019 or maybe early in 2020 in that book. Uh, so I, you know, I, and on North Korea, it's, it's, I think the the South Koreans are making a lot of progress and, you know, if the U.S. wants to keep on sort of punishing them or threatening to punish them for making progress, uh, it could get, I don't think it's going to go back to where it was in 2017 if it all falls apart. Um, so I'm a little bit more hopeful than, than Jeffrey is, um, on that front. But, you know, I think that we're going to have to make that decision, uh, pretty soon of like, how do we want to proceed and, and can we loosen up some of what our demands are on the North? Yeah. So those are obviously two of the big flashpoints um, that, that we could see conflict in over the next year and that, you know, Iran and uh, North Korea, whether that's particularly with Iran, whether that's a direct conflict or more likely, I think I would think a regional escalation somewhere like Syria, where we end up fighting Iranian proxies or Iranian troops. Um, but I'm going to add to that a third one. I'm going to add Ukraine. Because just in the last month, we have seen another escalation in Ukraine. We've seen Russia effectively close the Kerch Strait to shipping. Um, and that's the strait that links mainland Russia to Crimea. Um, the Russians obviously are actually worried about security of that bridge that they built. But um, in closing off the strait, they've also closed off traffic to a bunch of Ukrainian ports. And so there is an escalation here. And the Trump administration, despite what everybody says about them on Russia, has actually been quite pro-Ukrainian in their approach, providing lethal weapons to Ukraine, things like anti-tank missiles, um, and actually sort of typically supporting the, the regime in Kiev. So I'm going to add Ukraine as a flashpoint here that I, I worry a little that we could see escalation in in 2019. Yeah, that, that, that's definitely on the list. And I think complicating that is the uh, run up to the 2020 election when the suspicion about Russian meddling is going to continue to be in the news basically constantly. And so, you know, it, this is going to be interesting to see what the calculation in the White House is because Trump has maybe some soft spot in his heart. But on the other hand, he also uh, seems to rise to uh, certain challenges in kind of a I will show you kind of a way. And so it's like which which side is going to win out here? It's going to be interesting to see. Yeah. Um, that, all of that, I think, leaves us the 800-pound uh, gorilla in the room, right, which is China. Everybody's talking about China. Apparently, we're heading for an era of contestation, I think is the word that everybody's going for, uh, with China. And China is the, the big challenge. Everybody agrees on that. Nobody quite agrees why it's a challenge, what we should be doing about it, what our goal is in sort of pushing back against China. Um, but But that's the big one to watch, I think. Yeah, on every level, you you get people in the sort of the debate, Eric. You know about that you mentioned about liberal international order. There's people worried at that fundamental level that China wants to remake it into a Chinese, not liberal order. There's people worried about the economic playing field. There's people worried simply about the security playing field. Um, then, of course, the human rights uh, and internal politics playing field. So, you know, Emma, as you and I have sort of talked a little bit, you know, China is this sort of perfect. A place on which to project any concern you have about the world, and you can find it in China. And so I think there's just going to be an awful lot of US attention on China in 2019. And the question as you raise it is, does that attention have a, a real purpose? Like, you know, does the United States have a kind of a collective sense of why China? I don't think so yet. Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that, Trevor. And I think that an added layer to this is that there's so much, and it's not quite... Uh, at the you know readily apparent, but you can sort of see it in the background of of all these different sort of 
levels of competition that we're turning on China. Um, and I think it's this issue of prestige and status and that the U.S. has been used to being number one for a long time. Uh, and now, you know, Russia is a problem, but it's, it's sort of problem is pretty much one dimensional, right? Military, revisionist, whatever you want to call it. But China is the whole package. It's it has a potential alternative economic system, you know, authoritarianism, uh, surveillance of citizens, uh, military power. So it has it has more of the complete package, and I think that means that as the U.S. structures its China policy, uh, and it's true for both Beijing and Washington, you know, it's going to be tough for once you get on a path, it's going to be really tough for either side to deviate from it. Um, because of this this sort of psychological dimension of the problem. And I think that if we, you know, we can't really make the choice for Beijing, but if we choose the path of all-out confrontation across pretty much every issue area possible, then, you know, we might be surprised at how much China is going to willing to put up with and also uh, to push back on us. And it could be a lot harder to actually get them to change their behavior um, than a lot of people assume. Yeah, all of which raises the question of whether China uh, and foreign policy more broadly is going to end up being a big issue in the 2020 campaign because that's going to start later this year. Well, I mean, it, it, I agree. I mean, of course, as someone who studies these things, we we all think it should be. Um, Trump, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be a referendum on Trump. Uh, so whether that has much to do with foreign policy, eh. Maybe, maybe not. I mean, he's probably going to try to make immigration a big issue, though, right? I mean, that's he thinks that's his winning card. So I, I can see at least that piece of it as much as you consider that foreign policy anyway. Well, uh, I think that's all we have time for today. Um, that wraps us up for 2018. So thanks to everybody at home for listening this year. If you enjoy the show, uh, let us know with a good review on iTunes or Google Play. We'd also like to say a special thanks to our producer, Jeff Geld, who will be leaving us after this episode for brighter opportunities elsewhere. Um, we'll see you in the new year. We have episodes on immigration, on China, and much more lined up. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year.